0: If you'll reach for a Bible nearby or perhaps you have it on an electronic device, uh, our scripture reading this morning and for today's uh, teaching and the preaching of the word is from the Gospel of Luke. We're actually going to read two different selections this morning. Uh, so the first selection is Luke chapter 7 and you'll find that on page 863 here in these uh, uh, Bibles in the chairs. Page 863. And then we'll turn back to Luke chapter 24, uh, Luke 24, page 884. Uh, this is the Word of the Lord. Uh, this indeed is God's Word given to us for our instruction, for building us up, uh, for directing our lives, correcting us, um, for indeed reminding us of the many promises of our God that we might walk with our Lord and Savior. This is the Word of God. Beginning here at verse 11, It's Luke chapter 7. This is some of the teaching and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ on this particular scene. Luke 7 at verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, "Uh, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people, and this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea. And all the surrounding country. And then as well, if you'll turn back to Luke chapter 24, uh, the first uh, 12 verses of this chapter. Again, this is the wonderful recording of that uh, historical day and a historic day of Jesus' resurrection. Luke 24 verse 1. and on the, But on the first day of the week at the early dawn, they went to the tomb and taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. That was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened." This is the end of the reading of God's word. Uh, Let's join together in prayer. Our God, we ask now that you would come and minister to us and show us wonderful things, O God, in your word. Uh, Of of ourselves, our eyes would, uh, would have a glaze or indeed our ears would be stopped. But Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, and bring your word to our hearts, we pray. And Father, to the end, that we would know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we would live in Him and serve Him. Uh, Be with us now, we ask, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Beginning here with Luke chapter 7. Beginning with Luke chapter 7. So let me ask you, in light of these two passages, but opening up first here, this story of the widow here at Nain, which is more fitting for you today? What is most fitting for you today? Maybe most timely. Maybe, in fact, uh, uh, apropos and certainly going to meet the need of your life. Is it that you need the Lord's compassion this morning? Hmm. Is that the thing that's most fitting, most helpful? Lord, show me your compassion. Or maybe is it his conquering power? Lord, you be the intervention for me. You be the breakthrough for me. Your conquering power. What would it be that would save the day for you, as we sometimes will use those kinds of words in everyday speech? Is it that you need the Lord's understanding about your situation, or do you need his intervention about your situation? Do you need that genuinely sympathetic ear, or do you need that breakthrough helping hand? (laughs) Well, you can probably see a little bit where this leads, right? (laughs) The Lord Jesus Christ is is both. He's the one who's the compassionate king. He's the one full of compassion. He'll he'll say those very words to us. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And he says, come and take my yoke upon you. Uh, For he says, I am meek and humble, I am gentle. And what? He will give give you rest, give you rest for your souls. So he's the God of compassion. He's the God who bends an ear. He's a God who has that genuinely sympathetic ear and heart for your circumstances. And at the same time, our Savior is the conquering king. He's the one who breaks through. He's the one who intervenes. He's the one who delivers. The Bible tells us of the mighty hand of God. We're told with even Mary's song of praise, the mother of the Lord Jesus. We're told of Mary's song of praise in Luke chapter one and chapter two, uh, chapter one there, where there there is the one that the mighty arm of God has been revealed. And it's all about Jesus. The mighty arm of God has been revealed. So keep this in mind as we go through these lessons here from Luke seven and then back at Luke chapter 24. He indeed is our compassionate King, and we want to see something more of what this means. You see, our Lord is the God who is compassionate and uh, having all of his royalty and and magnificence and might, that he comes as the compassionate King. What does this mean? Not only does he transform our lives, he not only transforms our lives, but he transforms our suffering it transforms the hurts, the hardships, the difficulties that we experience in life. And we see it opened up to us here with this first story, this widow at name. We're back here at Luke 7. Uh, Verse 11 tells us that he he goes to another town, and Luke is just giving us, the gospel writer is giving us that narrative, that storyline, that Jesus would move beyond Capernaum That was basically his hometown. We know that he was reared in Nazareth. He was reared as a young child in Nazareth. But he spent many, many, much of his ministry, his public ministry, in Capernaum. But from time to time, of course, he would move around the northern region in Galilee. And here's one of them. Nain is about 20 miles uh, south of Capernaum. And so he goes there. And while he's there, it says here, went to the town called Nain. And he's there with his disciples. A great crowd went with him, verse 11. And then it says at verse 12 that he drew near to the gate of a town and behold a man who had died. We're being drawn in to this scene of death. We're being drawn into this scene of the widow and widowhood. And we see then that she experienced death twice. She's lost her husband and she's lost her son. So it's this double reinforcement And that is something of the old Israel mindset, something of the old Hebrew mindset. Double reinforcement that here is double gloom and double grief. That is to say, there's a dire need here. There is tremendous sorrow and the circumstances have compounded the grief. But it says that he drew near this town and there he 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 walks into a scene of a funeral. Verse 12, he drew new to the near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man had died. He was what? Being carried out. And the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd of the town was with her. So it's a funeral procession that's happening. And this beer, we we sometimes will refer to that, but oftentimes we think of a casket, we think of a coffin. But the beer in this olden times of old Palestine would usually be a stretcher, maybe a wooden plank, some 18 inches wide, 24 inches across, a wooden plank, maybe a stretcher of some kind. And it's the form, what's happening, it's it's the form of a procession that's taking place. And in old Palestine days, uh, the one immediate, immediate family would be in front. And so obviously the widow is out in front, this mother is out in front. And Jesus then walks up to this funeral procession that's taking place. There's obviously those who are, who are carrying the beer. They're carrying this stretcher, this wooden plank. And there is this body of the deceased person just lying there on the plank. Uh, he's already embalmed. And what's happening? They're taking him to the grave. Verse 12 says there's a considerable crowd of the town that's with her very common back then. But Jesus doesn't have his eye on the crowd. Jesus in his compassion has his eye on her. It's repeatedly told us. The story gives particular attention to the woman. How do we know this? Some of these verses, the Lord sees her. He has compassion for her. The Bible tells us here, he speaks to her. And after the resurrection of the son, after he tells the boy to arise. Jesus gives him back to her. The focus is in on her grief. The focus is on her heart, her concerns, all that's about her life. He will simply walk up to her, and we know that he'll say, do not weep, do not weep. Those are the only words we have recorded in this story, do not weep. They're timely words, they're words of compassion, but friends, keep in mind uh, back in the days of old Israel, those words, do not weep, were oftentimes words to remind the grieving, don't weep. It will, do, it will not do any good. But Jesus doesn't speak empty words. Verse 14 tells us he does something remarkable. He comes up there to the bier and he touched it. And the bearers, the Bible tells us, stood still. When he reaches out his hand and he touches that That plank, that stretcher, it's a a time of uh, a a remarkable, stunning occasion. Uh, These who are carrying this beer stop. They're alarmed. Why? Because there can be no greater ritual impurity in Israel than to touch a corpse or to touch a thing where a corpse has already been there. The consequences for touching something related to the dead corpse is not just one day, not one day of ritual uncleanness. It means seven days. According to Numbers 19, anyone who would touch anything where a dead corpse had been, there'd be seven days under the law where there would be this ritual uncleanliness and thus there would be this separation time for cleansing. And you see, the procession stops, therefore. What's he doing? He's Lord over impurity. He's Lord over death. He's the Lord of compassion. The procession stops. He turns to this young man. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the man sets up and he begins to speak. And Jesus hands him back to his mother. Now think about this. What do you think that young boy said? We don't don't have the words, right? But it says he began to speak. Mom, I'm hungry. (laughs) Mom, I'm here, you know, obviously. What does he begin to say? But the people speak. The people respond to Jesus' authority, Jesus' power by his word. They respond, who is this one? He's touched this funeral stretcher. But he's taking impurity to himself. He's the one who raises the dead. Fear is seizing them. Is this man a prophet? And what are they thinking about? They knew their Bibles. They're thinking about Elijah. Is this man a prophet? They're thinking about Elisha. Is this man a prophet? Two prophets out of the Old Testament, those earlier chapters back in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, both of these prophets had had young boys raised from the dead. (laughs) And they too had given themselves to take on impurity. How so? On both occasions, for Elijah and for Elisha, both occasions they would go to a room where these young boys are now dead, corpses lying. And the Bible tells us that each of the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, would then lie down on top of the child. Remember that? And Elisha gives us the details. The story of Elisha gives us the details. Lying on top of the child, it says, hand to hand, eye to eye, mouth to mouth. There's a transferal going on. That life is going to take on death. And death will be swallowed up by life. This is the glorious gospel. So what is it that burdens you this morning? What is it that leads you to hopelessness that even would lead you to death? To lead you to a grieving sorrow? To lead you to where you say all is over, there is no hope? Which is all picturesque about the curse of sin in this world. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The curse and its effects is to bring enmity Not reconciliation, but enmity between God and man. And enmity enmity between people so so that we ourselves know the effects of that curse and how we don't understand one another, don't have compassion for each other. We don't bear one another's burdens rightly. All with the view that this enmity and this strife and this ruin because of our, our sinful nature is all leading to death. But Jesus breaks through on that. He comes to self, in this particular story, to touch the coffin. He comes to identify with impurity and to take that death unto himself. And so just by his authority, he speaks this word. This child is raised up and he hands her back, hands him back to his mother. This is the power of that compassion. This is that kingly, royal intervention showing compassion. Uh, But keep in mind, Jesus is focusing in on this woman. He speaks to her. He sees her. He hands him back to her. The compassion of our Lord, this conquering king. How about you this morning? Is there someone here this morning that you know, you've been praying for them, you care for them? Someone here this morning that you're walking with them and their burdens, their griefs, their sorrows. Uh, Jesus is summoning us to place our trust in Him, not ourselves. We ourselves don't have the the capabilities. We ourselves don't have the the enabling power of God to minister compassion and to intervene with His hope of ourselves. We are helpless. But we all go to the Lord to be the body of Christ. We all go to the Lord to say, Lord, Take my sin, take my weakness, take my own griefs and, and, and you bring renewal, you bring hope, uh, you bring the gladness of joy that I might serve a brother, a sister that's here this morning, serve someone else. I like what Johnny uh, Erickson Tata says. Johnny, you remember, she's the one at 17 years of age that dives into the lake. Remember that? And now because of diving into that lake and hitting the bottom abruptly, she's now paralyzed and she's written those many books. She writes these words about compassion. You, fl- you flip through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And there he was, Jesus, hanging out with someone with a handicap, hobnobbing with people with disabilities, reserving his most gentle touch for the blind and counseling the father of little boys with seizures. He seemed to go out of his way to strike up conversation, conversations with guys who were paralyzed on straw mats, by the pool of Bethsaida. And since Jesus was not caught up with his own concerns, he was fully able and selflessly to enter into someone else's sufferings. You see what Johnny Erickson taught us saying. When you boil it all down, the compassion of Jesus is that he noticed people. He noticed people in pain. This morning, are you walking by faith? Are you trusting in the Lord who is the God of compassion The king who's conquered evil, overcome death, are you about now in his strength handing back to people? He handed the son back to her. But are you in his strength handing back to people hope, encouragement? Good Shepherd Church, as we seek to build this congregation, it's not our building, it's his. It's his compassion. It's his kingly power. It's his kingly enabling help and strength that we might minister to one another. For indeed, it's his compassion that we carry. For indeed, he carries us. There's a second lesson, more focused now about his conquering power. More specifically about his own conquering power. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 24. And of course, this is the marvelous story of Jesus' own resurrection. You see, when we talk about resurrections in the Bible... This is the one that's foundational. This is the one that indeed is the doorway through which we walk through and see all other resurrections, all raisings, all other raisings of the dead. Here is the Lord Himself who entered into death. The Bible tells us He's buried in the tomb, and yet He's gloriously raised from the dead. Look at verse 1 of of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, the women, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared... Now think about that. Why would they take spices that they had prepared when Jesus had already been buried? It's their care for his body. Perhaps they were thinking that those who are guarding the tomb or somehow the stone had not yet been uh, set in place. Or maybe they would receive some help that the stone might be now moved, that they might might again an embalmment to care for it. Something like that has to be going on. But they are there to prepare the body once again. Verse two, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, "Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but but has risen." what glorious truths of the conquering power of our God and Savior the Lord Jesus Christ what i'd like us to focus in on this particular story is the matter that this is god's scene not our scene get that this morning this is god's visitation just like in luke 7 the people marvel he must be a prophet and the people marvel god has visited us here it is the apex The heightened glory of the matchless ways of our God working in this world. This is his scene of triumph. It is not our scene. Yes, the women, they're in view in the story, of course. They've gone to the tomb. They've got more spices. They're ready to prepare the body even more. The Bible tells us they're a bit perplexed, of course. They get there and the stone's been rolled away. But then furthermore, they're prostrate lying down with their faces bowed down, Because it's now a a scene of terror and dread. There are these two angels that appear. That's going on. But the focus is what God is doing. Watch these words now. The stone is rolled away. That's in the passive. Men do not do that. Man did not do that. God rolls the stone away. The body is gone. Verse 4. God's power bringing his son back to life. Again in verse 4, two men standing there, dazzling apparel. That's why they're filled with dread. That's why the women are puzzled and perplexed. But the point is, God is visiting His people here. This is His scene. Verse 5, the angels tell them, Jesus is now living. Don't seek Him among the dead. He's not here. This is God's scene of His victory, His conquering power. This is what He has done. Look at verse 6. Again, they're reminded of truth. God is visiting them with truth. Don't you remember what he said to you? That he would be betrayed. He would suffer by the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day he would rise. God is visiting this scene. God is now the teacher through those angels. Don't you remember what he said to you? This is God's scene. And then they return to the eleven disciples and to the others. And what do they do? They become messengers like those angels. They become messengers. He's not there. He is alive. Now, they know something about, it says, it tells us that something about this idol fable. That's to say, they're they're not real sure about these things, but they do make that announcement. (laughs) They do make the announcement. So what's the point? When we're thinking about God's intervention, when we're thinking about his hand of power and his demonstration of deliverance, We're to go to our God. It's His intervention. It's His work. Again, what's practical here, this is not our scene. This is not our circumstance. This is not our story. This is not our history. It's not our record, our message, our doing. God is visiting the earth. What does this mean? Christianity is always top-down. Christianity is always heaven in its origin. Heavenly. Christianity is always God coming to man, God performing this mighty deed, God doing this work. And that's why Luther, the old German, uh, back in the 1500s, would speak of God's righteousness as an alien righteousness. Now Luther's not thinking of some science, you know, uh, some fantasy literature or science fiction literature. When he uses that language of an alien righteousness of God, he's saying... It's not here. It's coming from above. It's outside of you. Friends, this is conquering power outside of you. This is the demonstration of a deliverance outside of you. And that's why we trust in Jesus. We live in a day, don't we, friends, where we have to turn over another leaf. We're counseled to, to try on a new you, try something new and different. We're counseled by the podcasts and the radio broadcasts and the self-help stories upon you know, the internet, the YouTube or the television, that you can do this. You can be more positive in your life. All of those are looking inside all of those are are telling you to turn inward and you try, you try harder. You try something more. You try something different. You can be a new you. And that is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come to us. We go outside of ourselves. Lord, you've done this. My trust is in your work. My trust is in who you are. My trust is in what you have accomplished. You're the God of intervention. And friends, this is the res- resurrection of Jesus Christ. I like what the, po- the, the poet says here, that we're to go to Christ because it's His resurrection where our hope is. Listen to these words. Make no mistake, if He rose at all, it was His body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecules re-knit. The amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers of each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. No, no, it was his flesh. The poet has it. It's the historic truth of what God has done on that third day. The tomb is empty, Jesus is alive. He's conquered death. He's conquered the enemy, Satan himself. He's conquered sin. He's conquered hell. And today we're giving focus. He's conquered death. It's not our scene. It is his. So where is your faith? Are you seeking the God who has all compassion and the God who's the conquering king? Are you seeking the Lord Jesus Christ? I urge you this morning, do not place your faith in your faith. As a a young child growing up in a church going home, I spent most of my young childhood, my young boyhood days, trusting in faith. It was very common for me to say to my friends, you need more faith. You must trust in faith. Keep the faith, I would say to my friends in high school. Keep the faith. And I was oriented to some magical power in faith. I was was oriented. I was thinking that there's some religious virtue and power in faith as faith. The Bible does not teach that. Faith is a means. Faith is an instrument. Our faith is in the Lord. The Bible tells us, he who believes has everlasting life. Trust in the Lord. Believe and you shall be saved. Our trust is not in faith. Our trust is in the Lord. We go to Him as the God of compassion. We go to Him as the God who's our conquering King. Is your trust in Jesus Christ this day? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do go outside of ourselves and we go to you. We go to you as the conquering, compassionate King. You have done it all for us. Blessed be your holy name, the one who conquers with great victory, the one who indeed gives us hope. Jesus, you have conquered it all. Our trust is in you. Would you go with us now in this new week of rejoicing in you, giving you thanks, and praising your holy name? We give you thanks now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.